Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, have you heard about Ignite Seattle? It's a volunteer-powered event that started back in 2006. The concept is simple. People, most of them not public speakers, go on stage in front of 700 or so other people to share part of their life for five minutes. That could sound like your basic nightmare, but be brave, it pays off. The talks are often funny or informative or inspiring, and sometimes they just floor you. We're presenting talks from Ignite Seattle 32 here. It took place on February 23rd at Town Hall Seattle. Their next event is coming up on May 18th, again at Town Hall. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, MC Scott Birkin launches the program. Good evening. Welcome to Ignite Seattle 32. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to see you all. How are you doing? That is a fantastic answer. So my job, I'm Scott Burke, and I'm your MC for the night. Talks are open submission, so we don't do a lot of pre-curation. We wait for the talks to come in, and we try to figure out how can we assemble a great evening out of this. And there's one theme that came up tonight, which is sort of coincidental, serendipitous, which we like, which has to do with our bodies. So our first talk, and as you will learn, we are very open-minded about the way we talk about things here. So you're going to hear a fantastic opening talk. Sarah Gensel is going to talk. Well, actually, she's, the title of her talk is Let's Talk About Menstruation. Please, uh, please round of applause for Sarah to come up on stage. Hi, everyone. Please raise your hand if you or anyone you love has ever shed their uterine lining. <laughs> Look around you. Great. OK, I'm here to talk to you about why talking about menstruation started having me make good connections with unlikely people. And that started with a menstrual cup. A menstrual cup is a silicone vessel that you put into your vagina, it collects your menstrual fluid, and then you dump it out and you reuse it as an alternative to tampons or pads. It gets you real up close and personal with all of the bloody glory of your body. And my friend was adamant that I try to use one. And the way she convinced me was by telling me it is environmentally friendly to use a menstrual cup and also is cost effective. And I am deep in student debt. So I went for it. And it was disgusting. I was totally <laughs> repulsed. I was totally repulsed, and I couldn't even use it for the first few months because I would try, and it would freak me out, and then I'd put it away, and then I would shun it, and then I'd get it out again and start the whole cycle over again. And after a couple months of that, I took a step back, and I started to question why that was happening. What's going on in my subconscious that was motivating this visceral reaction to my own biology? Because I can... I can actually objectively look at a period as something cool and something beautiful, and I'm not afraid of blood, so what's my excuse? And if you are having those same kind of questions right now and feel uncomfortable with how I'm talking about this, think about how many people around you are raising their hands earlier and maybe start asking yourself those same questions. When I was processing those questions, I started writing about it. And I wrote a personal narrative detailing exactly what I just talked about with my menstrual cup, but also exploring those deeper questions of what's going on here. And I came to these conclusions, these sort of speculative conclusions about ingrained sexism and um, ideas like that that are kind of penetrating my subconscious and motivating these 
feelings. And then I decided I needed to share that on a wider platform because I felt like if I didn't, I would be directly contradicting the whole idea, which is why can't we talk about this? Let's please talk about menstruation. And it was really scary sharing that story on social media because I used really raw <laughs> language like digitally penetrate myself and um, a confession about using two tampons at a time in high school. And in addition to that, this is two or three weeks after the presidential election, and everything that I would plug into social media felt just incredibly politically charged. And within that political conversation, it, everything felt deeply, deeply polarized to such an extent that there were these two camps, and it was me voting for one candidate and everyone who, else, who did with me, and then this other camp where people voted for another candidate. And no matter what we posted, no matter how topical it was, it felt incredibly deeply political. So posting this, felt really anxiety provoking. I was totally overcome by this <laughs> really shaky feeling of what's gonna happen? Are they gonna, these people in this other camp, are they gonna judge my raw encounter, my raw conclusions I came to? But then to my surprise, over the next few hours, a lot of positive feedback started rolling in. And it wasn't just from my close friends and family, it was from people from all levels of connectedness throughout my life who I hadn't talked to in years. Actually, my favorite comment came from someone who I would firmly place in the them category as far as political action on Facebook. I mean, they vocally supported a candidate I didn't vote for, and they wrote something on my wall saying, wow, I'm surprised. I, I didn't think I would like this, but I did. That's kind of the point, right? And it wasn't the point, but then it became the point because I realized that I had permission to start talking about this with more people. And I brought it up at networking events with people I hadn't even talked to before. And <laughs> And it went great, surprisingly. And I started a conversation with my dad about feminism and what that means to me, and it was wonderful. And then I started realizing that there was a bigger lesson here, and that's that there is a common human experience, that there's this wealth of human commonalities, that if we can tap it and we can really dig in there, that we can make connections with people that we never thought we could connect with. There's this human factor that I think if we acknowledge it and we don't let it fail to be a factor, we have power there. And I challenge you and I challenge myself to go into every interaction with that assumption that you have a connection with whoever you're talking to. But an even, even bigger challenge that I know that we can all handle is to actively seek out and reveal these human commonalities, this human factor, because I think it's becoming, becoming more and more important as we go forward in this political and social landscape together. Um, if you want to talk to me about anything, come up and talk to me afterward, of even periods or menstrual cups, because I'm sort of an expert on those now. Um, and if you want to read my original story for any sort of inspiration as to how we can tap into these ideas and what people are receptive to, feel free to go to my Medium page and check it out. Thank you. All right, good stuff. So following along one little stream you'll experience tonight about human biology and commonality, something else we all share is an intestinal system. So our next talk, Hannah Thomasy is going to talk about a gut feeling, the microbiome, and our health. Please welcome Hannah to the stage. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Um, we usually think that our health is governed by our own choices and our own genetics. But today I'm going to be talking about how uh, trillions of tiny organisms living inside of us actually play a huge role in our physical and even mental health. 
The microbiome is the genetic material of all of the organisms that live on and in us. It's mostly made of bacteria, but also includes viruses, archaea, and fungi. Just like the Earth has a lot of different environments where different plants and animals live, uh, our body has a lot of environments where different types of microbes live. Microbes have colonized the entire surface of our skin, even the surface of our eyes. They live in our nose and mouth, our throat and lungs, and throughout our entire digestive tract. Even though microbes are probably important in all of the human systems in which they're found, uh, the one I'm going to be talking about today is the gut microbiome, simply because that's the one we know the most about. We have trillions, if not hundreds of trillions of microbes and thousands of different species. This is the equivalent of carrying around uh, a small dog with us all the time. We have about two to six pounds. We usually think that microbes are gross and disease-causing, and sometimes they are. But our gut microbes are really important in helping us be healthy. Gut microbes help us to, to digest our food. They produce vitamin B and vitamin K. And especially in infancy, they're really important for helping our immune system develop properly. In fact, notobiotic or microbe-free mice are actually much less healthy than mice that were raised in, with a normal complement of microbes. The problem is we don't really know what a healthy microbiome should look like, even though we know that having a healthy microbiome is important for being a healthy person. Uh, this is a chart where different colors represent different species of microbes uh, from the guts of people living in different places in the world. Even though these are all from healthy people, we can see that the composition of their gut microbiome actually varies quite a lot. And so a healthy microbiome is probably different for everyone. So we do know that a healthy microbiome is diverse and balanced, but sometimes potentially harmful species can take over, producing an imbalance or dysbiosis. There are a lot of disorders associated with dysbiosis, including gut disorders like irritable bowel, but also psychiatric disorders like depression and neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's. Um, so if we know uh, that an imbalance of microbes um, can predispose us to certain diseases, can we manipulate our microbes to treat disease? And it's possible. I think we're getting there. The problem is, like I said, we have thousands of different microbes, and we don't really know what they all do. Probably the more we learn about the role of each species of microbe, the more we'll be able to manipulate them to treat or prevent disease. So. Uh, you've probably heard that probiotics are good for you, uh, like these women really enjoying their yogurt. <laughs> and the good news is, is that some cases, probiotics actually are really helpful. Um, there's good evidence that they're helpful in treating uh, gut disorders like irritable bowel and ulcerative colitis. And although the study of probiotics and mental health is still in its infancy, uh, there's at least one study showing that probiotics can be helpful in treating depression. The problem is, not all probiotics are created equal. Uh, and in fact, how a probiotic is classified is really important. If a probiotic is classified as a drug, it comes under strict FDA regulation and has to be proven safe and effective before it can be sold to you. But if it's a dietary supplement, it just has to be generally accepted as safe and doesn't have to be proven effective at all. So be careful what you're spending your money on. Um, so probably, 
the absolute coolest part of manipulating the microbiome is the story of fecal transplants and C. diff. C. diff is a potentially fatal bacterial infection that actually kills about 15,000 people a year in the United States alone. It's highly resistant to antibiotics. But the super cool thing is, is that if fecal bacteria is transplanted from a healthy donor into someone with C. diff, it cures them about 90% of the time in cases where antibiotics have already failed. So that's a pretty miraculous life-saving treatment for a lot of people. All right, um, so if you like learning about the human body and how we're all really gross and have weird diseases, uh, check out my podcast. It's called The Hypochondriac's Guide, and it's available on iTunes. Thanks for coming. Great job. It's good. One thing you may have noticed, she did that in four minutes and 30 seconds. We got 30 seconds now to get to know each other better. It's good. I think I know you guys pretty well, because you're gonna like the next talk. Among the things on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, which by the way is kind of a made-up hierarchy, Maslow admitted it, he's like, I'm making this up. It sounds good, and now we believe it's like gospel. Hierarchy needs is that funny meme where people slash through everything and that the everything is just Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is the only thing you really need anymore. So in Seattle, that might be true, given how much we obsess about our bandwidth and such. So the next talk is going to help you out with that. Patrick McKenna is going to talk about how to become a Wi-Fi ninja. Please welcome him to the stage. Holy cow, you guys are awesome. If you want to do something awesome, let's do something awesome. Let's imagine that you've invited all of your friends and neighbors over to do movie night on Friday. And you put up your projector, you've gotten the Apple TV out, you've hooked everything up, it's about an hour before everyone shows up and you get an error message. But this is cool, everybody knows what we do. What do we do? We reboot the Apple TV. Doesn't work. Well, there's a super power that we all have. We know that if we go to our wireless router and we hit the reboot button, that's gonna solve all of our problems. But then we fire up our Apple TV again and we've got the same error message. What if we use one of our computers? Everything seems to be working there, but not on the Apple TV. Maybe we overestimated our technical ability. <laughs> and people are showing up in about a half hour, and you're realizing that you've made a pretty bad life choice. <laughs> you don't really like people. You're more of an introvert. <laughs> and so what are we going to do? There's a lot of people who are going to show up and be disappointed. Wouldn't it be great if it was easy to troubleshoot your own Wi-Fi? It's super easy. It's actually something that all of you can do. There are three concepts that you need to have a handle on, and I'm going to share those with you tonight. So those three concepts that you need to understand are your wireless connection, something called internet protocol, it's IP, and then something called domain name services. We say DNS. So we say it all together, connection, IP, DNS, connection, IP, DNS, connection, IP, DNS, connection, IP, DNS. Okay, you got it. What is the connection? That's your wireless strength. You want to be on a strong wireless network, and you want to be on your wireless network. If you're on a weak network, not, things are going to go bad, and if you're on the wrong network, things are going to go bad. So make sure you're on the right connection. Internet protocol is this thing that does routing on the internet. If you're going to send mail to someone, you need to know their street address, and you also need to send your destination, the sender address. 
Computers work the same way. If you're going to send traffic on the internet, they have something called an IP address, and it looks like this crazy fun number here. You also need to validate that you can send traffic to connect, uh, uh, IP addresses on the internet. You also need to validate that you can send traffic to IP addresses on your home network. So you want to check IP. Does my computer have an IP address? Can I send traffic to the IPs that are in my home network? And can I send traffic to the internet? The cheat here is we just try to send traffic to the internet first. And there's this magic spell, ping 8.8.8.8. That address I think you can all remember. You see traffic going there and you get a response, you know you have connections to the internet. Nothing, then you know something's wrong at home and you need to try to test your connections there. The third component is this cool thing called domain name services. Computers really like numbers and they hate names. And people really like names and hate numbers. And so DNS bridges the gap. It's the thing that takes our Google.com or our Facebook.com and turns us into one of those cool IP addresses there. If the computer can't access a DNS server, it doesn't know how to do translations. So you would actually be accessing the internet, but then you get these funky error messages that tell you that Google couldn't resolve. Do you want to Google for Google? So DNS is this third component. Every computer is configured to point to a DNS server. And so the way that you can test DNS is this magic spell, NSLOOKUP. And you can pick any domain you like, google.com, facebook.com, whatever. You get IP addresses coming back. You know DNS is working OK. You get nothing. Something's wrong with your DNS server. So in our case before, I had my Apple TV pointing at the wrong DNS server. So DNS lookups failed, and then I got that weird iTunes message, even though I was actually connected to the internet. So that's really the secret here. It's those three simple things. Your wireless connection, internet protocol, and domain name services. Your goal is to figure out, is my home network working, yes or no? And then the second part is, can I access stuff on the internet, yes or no? That's it, three things. I think you all can do this. I hope you thought this was cool. My name is Patrick McKenna. By day, I work for a company called AT&T, and I'm responsible for security in the mobile network. I work on a team that keeps 130 million subscribers safe from hackers. By night, I'm working on a book that teaches kids who are heading off to college about cybersecurity. If you think that's cool, please follow me on Twitter. I'll be announcing as the publication date gets closer. I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks very much, everybody. Great job. Okay. All right. As frustrating as things like bad cell service, your Wi-Fi going down can be, it's easy for us, given all the things we have in our lives, all the privileges we have, to lose perspective on what's important. And I think our next talk is going to help reset our perspectives in a bunch of ways. Corinne Johansson is going to talk about Badass 3.0, and I'll let her explain to you what that means. Please welcome her to the stage. What's the first rule of Fight Club? <laughs> Tonight, I'm talking about a different Fight Club with a different rule. I run a Fight Club for people with Parkinson's, and our first rule is to kick Parkinson's ass. 
My fighters show up every morning to just say no to I can't. And they know that Ali could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee because he had practiced the balance and agility to be able to dance around the ring. So that's how we train, with boxing, some martial arts, even a few fundamentals from parkour. So I work with a gym full of people I consider badasses. Tonight, you'll meet three of them. Badass number one is Fred. Fred has had cerebral palsy his entire life, and then Parkinson stepped into the fray. Cerebral palsy affects his left side, and Parkinson's his right. But boxing balanced things out for him. He became stronger on the left side and more flexible on the right. Beyond that, by training like a pro fighter, jumping rope, he went from two consecutive jumps to 22 in just a few months. How's that for results? Badass number two, Jeff, has hated and avoided exercise and the gym his entire life. But, and I bet a few of you can relate to that. But when Parkinson's came along and his meds only took him to 90% of what he deemed acceptable, he took up the sweet science. And he discovered that he had life-changing benefits from the program. So he decided a few weeks ago to go to training camp so that he could become my assistant coach and help others. Badass number three, Big Mike, is what many of you might consider a typical badass. He was a football player, beach volleyball player, completed the two-day, 200-mile STP cycling event at 39, took up pumping iron at 55. So as you can imagine, when I'm holding mitts for Mike's hooks and uppercuts, he can practically take my arm off. But other times, he freezes. And this is one of the symptoms of Parkinson's that when I went to the World Parkinson's Congress, I expected that the top names in neurology would have the magic answer for Mike and for me as um, his trainer. But they're still doing research about the whys. What I've been able to do since then, however, is to put together a toolbox of ways to either avoid or recover from those episodes. And so, just the other day, we were working on a new routine, and Mike was hitting even harder than usual, and not freezing. So, I started this fight club because my dad had been hit hard by Parkinson's, but my fighters have reminded me 
that no matter what obstacle we're facing, we can hit back. So anyone who wants to learn more about what we do can hit me up after the presentation, or you can find us online at BeatPDWA. Thank you. Great job. So our next talk, Virginia Emery is going to talk about how being uncomfortable is really the only way to grow. To grow. Please welcome Virginia to the stage. Hi, I'm Virginia, and my life's mission is to feed the planet. My superpower is being uncomfortable. So here, great start, talking in front of a room full of people. Let's talk about uncomfortable. Uncomfortable is defined as causing or feeling slight pain, a little bit of discomfort, some unease, awkwardness. This is, these are not pleasant things. We spend most of our lives running away from uncomfortable, pursuing comfort. And so I'm hoping today to convince you to turn the other way and embrace uncomfortable. To start us off, think back to your most uncomfortable time. <laughs> Being a teenager, you all remember the awkwardness of growth spurts and the horrors of high school. But those are all important parts of your development into an adult and the person you are today. Remember back to that awkward feeling when you're asking someone out for the first time. That uncomfortable feeling is an important step to finding true love. Think about the last run you went on. Any runners in the room? Have you ever had to fart when you're running? <laughs> Usually there's a really cute person behind you, and if you aren't willing to deal with that uncomfortable feeling, you'll never get stronger or faster. So really, being uncomfortable is important for personal growth, spiritual, emotional, and physical. So my journey with uncomfortable, it started with one of my first jobs, tree planting. And tree planting sucks. You are dropped off in the middle of nowhere by your dad. You get every day driven out at 7 AM to a clear cut, a totally desolate place you're plopped there with a couple thousand trees, and for 12 hours, you walk this plot of clear-cut planting trees. To top it all off, the rhythm with which you plant is perfectly timed to Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> and I had that stuck in my head for two months. Along with that, there was this constant battle against the millions and millions of mosquitoes. So many mosquitoes that you can't keep your mouth open. You end up eating them. But I embrace the Zen philosophy of the Navy SEAL, which is learning to be comfortable with uncomfortable. And that's brought me to incredible places. I can be in the most beautiful jungle, and despite the bugs, really appreciate it. I can pursue my greatest fear, fear of drowning, and go whitewater rafting, and have incredible adventures down the Grand Canyon. And most recently, my willingness to be uncomfortable has allowed me to start my own company. <laughs> yeah. 
So a whole other story, I farm bugs to help farmers grow more food, but this journey of being a business owner has a lot of uncomfortable times. Probably the most significant has been having to fire people. This is a really uncomfortable feeling, and it's because there's so much pain and stress and uncertainty on the other side of that equation. Which brings me to what uncomfortable is not. If you are in pain, or you're sad, or you're angry, those feelings overwhelm you, and you can't make decisions properly. Uncomfortable, it's something different. It's, it's unique. It's this knife's edge, this temporary feeling, moving from one comfort to another, a position of great privilege, and it gives you a lot of perspective. Our country, of course, has been feeling very uncomfortable, as has Seattle. And I think we all have the challenge now of harnessing and moving towards uncomfortable, to have the hard conversations. The problem is if we don't do this, things that would make us feel uncomfortable become desensitized as we try to make them comfortable. We, we go through this routine of making something visceral into something normal. This week, the UN declared the first famine since 2011. This should make everyone super uncomfortable. And this picture, I know it's making everyone here uncomfortable, and that's a good thing. Because uncomfortable is the sign that something needs to change, and that change is happening. And at least for me, <laughs> Uncomfortable is what lets me be the change that I want to see in the world. Thank you. Usually I'm kind of a hard ass about the five minute thing, but if you're that authentic on stage, you get another 10 seconds or so. so thank you, Virginia. That was very good. Next up, uh, you're in for a treat. Uh, we have some alumni who come back and speak again and again. You're gonna get a talk from one of them. She may be in the top five or 10% of people we've had on the stage. No, pr no pressure. <laughs> she liked, she's laughed at that, so that's a good sign. Next up is Beth Fitzgibbon. She's gonna talk about storage hacking, AKA hoarding 101. Please welcome Beth to the stage. Hi. Um, so uh, five years ago, I gave a talk about the elegant art of waiting in line so that you could buy shit that everybody else wants to buy. Now I'm back to talk about where to put the shit that you bought. <laughs> I love George Carlin's thing on stuff. If you haven't heard it, go find it. Um, there is a fine line between hoarding and collecting. <laughs> it's a very fine line. Razor edge. And really what it boils down to isn't how much stuff you have, it's whether or not you have adequate storage for your stuff. Because if you do, then you're just a functional hoarder, which is totally okay. Um, except for when you move from a really large house to a smaller house, which was my situation. So what I realized is the first rule of storage hacking is you've got internal and outer, out, outer Outernal, new word, storage. <laughs> Outer 
inner storage is display things. Um, outer storage is where you get to kind of make a statement about yourself through your stuff. Um, art, when you think about it hanging on the wall, the wall is just a place to store your art. So think of things that are out as being stored. Inner storage is when you put things behind doors. These are things that maybe are about your personality that you don't want people to see. <laughs> or they're the practical things that you just need to put somewhere. Um, so when you're gonna start doing some storage hacking, you, you make a list. What's my inner stuff? For me, it's things like batteries and toiletries. What's my outer stuff? Absolutely my Chewbacca collection. That's going out, <laughs> front and center. So, best phrase that George Carlin said, a house is just a pile of stuff with a roof on it. And that is true for my case. So we moved into this new house. We lost about 600 square foot of storage. And so I had to get creative. So here's your first hack. Walls are just closets without shelves or doors. <laughs> so this wall on the left, kind of an awkward space. We put shelves on it. And we've got a whole passel of other statues that we can rotate in. Small rooms are just big closets. <laughs> get clever. I loved how the staging of our new house, it was this nice little office. I'm like, screw that, it's a library. <laughs> and I've got Legos in there and toys. Um, furniture, some furniture is just really storage in disguise. So like cool shelves, um, we have a bench with a, with a drawer where we can put stuff, and even the lamp had a couple little shelves because I have a shit ton of art, trust me. <laughs> if there is a space, there is a piece of furniture to go in there. I discovered this, this was insane. So we have this little tiny space above our toilet, we have this little space under the sink, I found shelving. Um, it's amazing, so hobby storage furniture it's kind of a thing now. Um, this gaming table is crazy. So um, the lid lifts up, and if I'm not done playing, we could put the game in, put the lid back down. There's little drawers that attach to the table. It's crazy. All right, let's talk about inner storage. Rethink the square. This closet is actually has four different quadrants. We've got the like hats and coats on one side. I've got tubs of art on the other side. And then what you can't see is on the other side, really long things because the shelf didn't go all the way out. Wheels are everything. If you have weird closets, like this one's really narrow but long, we can like roll one thing out to get to the other one. So, um, and we have like wheels on our ladder. Call the professionals. This is my craft closet. I actually have another picture of this one because like, I love this closet. Um, so this was like uh, the container store over in Bellevue. It was like, what's your space? What do you need? They came in and installed it. Um, it was amazing. Ban the bar. We hung a bar in this closet because, you know, to hang stuff. And then I realized we're wasting all this space where we could put stuff. And so... <laughs> Right? So shelves for our DVDs and our games. Grab and go. So I had to show another picture of my craft closet. Like, I really love this thing. But on the right is our game closet, where yes, I have labeled everything by the number of players, and they are in order from one to eight. As I was researching storage, um, I came across some amazing storage solutions and got very envious. The Lego storage is actually a Seattle guy. Um, look him up, it's amazing what he's done. Um, this is just ridiculous. Like, let's just sit here for a minute. First of all, those purses could buy my home. Um, 
the gaming one, he had tabs alphabetizing his games. So get clever, put your stuff out there, find a good home for it, and thank you. We're going to take a little turn now to a more serious subject, go, go a little deeper again. Not that this isn't a serious subject, of course. Uh, the next talk, uh, Bridget Foley is going to talk about the power of wearing your pain on your sleeve. Please welcome her to the stage. So there are two ways to live a life free of grief. The first is to never love anything. No person, no pet, no television show, nothing. The second is to go ahead and love things, but to die before everything you care about. <laughs> Those are your choices. So just for the sake of time, I'm going to assume you know they both suck. My point is that if you are very lucky if you live a statistically normal amount of years and you have love in your life, you are going to experience grief. It is absolutely universal. Everyone in this room and this city and this planet is going to be in mourning at some point in their lives. So while that's sad, it also means that it's normal. It's expected. My question is, if grief is normal, why are we bad at it? Because we are bad at it. And I don't mean taking care of people who are grieving. I mean being people who are grieving. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and it might make some of you uncomfortable, but I promise it has a purpose. Three years ago, my daughter died. It is the kind of loss that people say is unimaginable. But what they mean is that it's too painful to even think about, much less experience. There is a part of me that will never leave the room where my daughter died, and that is the truest thing that I can say. Okay, now, how are you feeling? <laughs> no one's running for the door. You survived. I bet a fair few of you knew exactly what I was talking about when I said I will never leave that room because you have your own rooms you will never leave. If there is one word that people use to describe the grieving process, it is lonely. And that is the paradox. Grief is universal. Grief is isolating. I am alone. I am in company. We are bad at grief because how to live with it long-term is never modeled for us. Grieving people hide it because it's rude to make you feel like I just made you feel. But because other people hide their grief from us, when we experience it ourselves, we feel alone. This leads many of us to believe that loss is something you get over instead of something you get used to. But I have a proposal. I call it the wet chair, wet pants method of grief sharing. <laughs> Don't worry, the pants and the chair are metaphorical. <laughs> Let's say you're out for a walk and your favorite little old lady neighbor spots you and, and she invites you to come sit with her on her porch. But when you get up there, you see that the chair that she's offered you is wet. 
And you know if you ask her for something to wipe it down, she's going to have to get up, and she's creaky, and her dog is in her lap. So do you just sit in the chair? <laughs> or do you make your neighbor just a little bit uncomfortable to spare yourself a greater discomfort? A wet chair is a choice a grieving person encounters when they have to decide whether or not to say something that reminds others that death happens or to live with the wet pants of saying nothing. It's, Happy Gilmore was my late wife's favorite movie too. Or, actually, I have three children. Now, I don't recommend doing this all the time. Sometimes it is better to have metaphorical wet pants. Job interviews, public speaking events. <laughs> but, if you can get comfortable with making others just a little bit uncomfortable, you open yourself up to so much more. Because the very worst thing that can happen is that you can remind someone that grief is normal and survivable. And the best thing that can happen, and it can only happen if you are open, is that the person you share with will get a look in their eyes and they will say, me too. And that is how you open a door that connects the room that you will never leave to the room that they will never leave. Thank you. Thank you. It's good stuff. Okay, so this is our last talk for the first half. Uh, this talk, we have so much in our society, in American culture, about people who succeed, and we lionize them and romanticize them. We often use words like genius and prodigy, and we call people, we call people that there's some luck, that there's some magical thing that happened that distanced them, their talents from ordinary people. And our next talk is going to dispel some of those myths and rumors. Stephanie Lukash is going to talk about how to win a national award. Please welcome her to the stage. I won a national award last summer for my work at King County, and it was incredible. It's, thanks. It's, it's the sort of thing you aspire to for your entire career, and you think, wow, that would be amazing if that ever happened. I'm a change agent. I change culture in organizations, and I work for King County government. And the reason why I care so much about the work is because of all of you, because you're all taxpayers, and I want my job to be good because I know that it will save you money and time when you do business with us. So I'm a public servant and I'm very proud of that work I do. But I, thank you, but I realized in that that it was about finding your power and finding the advice I would give to my 22-year-old self if I was to go back in time. And it's not luck. It's about finding your passion and diving in. I've been surprised by the number of people who have said, oh, you're so lucky to have that job, or you're so lucky to win that award, or to work part-time. And I tell them all the time, it's not luck at all. It's years of hard work, and perseverance, and determination. And I'm the person who says yes to challenging assignments. If there's a controversial project that on the team no one wants to take, I say yes. And you know why? Because it stretches me. And I think that's really important. One of my mantras is make yourself indispensable. And that's a piece of advice I give to everyone I mentor. Make yourself indispensable. Think about what you can do to learn, grow, always be stretching, always be learning. And I think that will take you a long way toward finding your own personal power. 
And for me, my experience has never been that opportunity knocks. I've always knocked for opportunity. And it's really important to know that. If you're going to find your power, you need to get that straight. You have to knock for opportunity and persist. Don't take no for an answer. If there's a place that you want to work, go for it. Continue. Persevere. Ask. Don't take no for an answer. It's really important. In my career, I've done this a number of times, and my most recent job change two years ago, I left a job I loved. I had a team that was like family, and we were all really close, and I took an opportunity that was two years with no guarantees, and I had to prove myself. And you know what? I took it and have never looked back. And I think for me, one of the big things in my life, and I think many of us need to learn this, is how to shine. Step into the light. Learn how to be who you really are, and don't let anyone hold you back. And I think a big part of it, too, is learning how to accept credit. When someone says, hey, great job, what you say is simply thank you. What you don't say is, oh, it was nothing, or oh, it was a team effort, when it really wasn't. If you've done really important work, <laughs> take credit. It's absolutely important. And you have to apply for the award. It's not like the National Association of Counties said, oh, I think Stephanie Lukash up in King County is doing really great work. Let's give her an award. No, I had to tell our story. I had to work really hard in the application. And it's uncomfortable. It's like when we interview for jobs. And some of us find that uncomfortable, like tooting your own horn and talking about how great you are. But it's important to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Because if you don't, you're not going to find your power. And I guarantee you'll have critics, guaranteed. And what you have to do is realize, I'm going to keep my power. I'm not going to let my critics take my power from me. And just accept that they're there. It's a challenge, but you can deal with it. And it's really important to do that. And I think for me, one of the big things in my life I think I've done really well is always be in a place of gratitude. Be appreciative of the people around me, the love I have in my life, the good things, especially when things are going difficult or challenging. If you're in a place of gratitude, it takes you a really long way. And I've I also really think it's important to have a strong work-life balance. I work part-time, like I mentioned, and that's not a small thing. It's a very conscious decision, and it took years of working full-time to get to this place, but I think life is short, and it's really important to take advantage of opportunities and to live fully and to live right now, and one of my big mantras in life is not have regrets, no regrets. So it's really important to remember that life is short. And I think something else that people often don't do, but I think is really important, is to thank the people who helped you along the way. When I found out about the National War, when the National Association of Counties contacted me, I told my boss, and then I told my husband, and my best friend, and then I made two phone calls to two of my mentors who are both retired now, who were critical in my development and who helped me along the way, because I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm on their shoulders and the next generation's on my shoulders, and that's why it's important to mentor those who are coming after us. And finally, I would say, stay humble, but stay hungry. I want all of you to be 90 years old and learning something new, right? Learning how to play chess for the first time, right? Learning some new, some new hobby. Because if you're always hungry, that's how you find your power. You find your passion. You keep working toward it. You're always curious. And who knows? Maybe you'll receive a national award, too. Thanks. Thank you. OK, that was excellent. For our second half, you may have noticed there are things on stage other than the speaker at the moment. Huh, what is this for? Well, you're going to find out in a minute. This is a special introduction. I want to make sure I get it right. 
Next up, B. Calvez, the Grand Poobah, assisted by Christina Castellano, a.k.a. Queen Poopachina, is going to talk about Holy Shit, A New Way to Go. Please welcome them to the stage. <laughs> Woo. Can you say Holy Shit? I am here to transform the way you think about shit. And I will not be deterred. How many of you pee or poop every day? All right, well, with your permission, I'm going to show you a new way to go. So, uh, does shit stink? Yes. Is shit gross? That makes sense because. Shit has pathogens in us that can make us sick, so we want to be as far away with it as possible. That's why we have flush toilets. This is what we've grown up with, right? It makes sense. It takes the poop away from us. Problem solved, right? But we live in a culture of disposability where that shit has a value of zero. And the stuff we pour down the drain, like Comet and Drano and the pesticides and pharmaceuticals, all go down the drain because they have a value of zero. And also, on top of that, we're pooping in drinking water. Can you say, holy shit? Holy shit. What's up with that? It doesn't, does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make sense. But that's what we know. That's what we know how to do. So on top of that, the average American sp uh, flushes 14 gallons of water down the toilet per day for pooping and peeing. And the average African uses five gallons for all their water needs. So holy shit. Holy shit. So, here's the new paradigm. What would, it, what would holy shit look like? Can we even imagine what it would look like if, to honor our shit? Like, what would it be if, if shit actually had value, if it was valuable? So, here it is, actually, on our planet for millions of years, animals have been pooping. And that's a lot of R&D. And so, what you have is poop coming out of the animal, going onto the ground, becoming compost, going into the trees, and becoming food for the animals again. It's a big cycle. So here's, we're going to have a live demonstration from Queen Pupachina here in front of your eyes of a sawdust toilet. This comes from the Humanure Handbook. It's totally amazing, and it's totally simple. The idea is, is you have a toilet box, you have a five-gallon bucket, and you have cover material like sawdust or like shredded leaves or something along those lines. You poop in the bucket or pee in the bucket. Thank you very much. There it is. <laughs> then you cover that poop or pee with your cover material. And guess what? It doesn't stink. Guess what? It's totally sweet and nice. And guess what? All of that material is going to go to make something beautiful like food or flowers. And guess what? On top of that, we can take that bucket and put that into a system and compost that in our own neighborhoods, in urban environments, without bugs, without odors, without getting sick. We can do this, folks. It's totally doable. Yeah. This is poop that I, uh, no, this is not poop. This is compost. People, my family go, do you eat poop? I was like, no, I don't eat poop. So this is compost aged for two years. It's totally safe. It's beautiful. Now imagine this is our future. You have your yard waste bin, you have your recycle bin, and you have your full buckets of poop. And somebody comes and picks that up and takes that away from you. For, and they bring you fresh buckets and more cover material, and we don't have to put that, we don't have to poop in drinking water at all. So here's holy shit. This is our project to take uh, sawdust toilets to festivals, and this is from last summer. 
And our job is to make this beautiful and make it fun and show that this doesn't have to be so freaking serious. We're pooping, it's okay. So we play, people play ukuleles in the potty. We married a couple in, in one of the potties. And we have fun, we dance around, we do stuff, we have a great time. So the idea is, and people say that they were so blown away by this, and we're just pooping in buckets. That's all we're doing. So this is, <laughs> this is the compost mandala. This is artwork created by community. This is finished compost. This is not poop. And people can put their hands in it and make beautiful stuff. And here's Pumoji, the holy shit, who we parade around. Yes, bow down before Pumoji. And this is our amazing team, Queen Pupuchina and Sphincterina and me, the Grand Puba. And our job is to bring the gospel of shit to the world. And here we are. Folks, we don't have to poop in drinking water. Shit is sacred and water is sacred. And we can compost our poop and turn it into something beautiful that brings new life. So can you say holy shit for me? Holy shit. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And one last thing. It's time for us to take responsibility for our shit. We can do this. That was excellent. We all have family. We all get mad at people. Some people are more, are, do it in a healthier way than others. This talk is going to help all of you parents out there think about the emotional context of how you deal with your children. Jenna Pertusset is going to talk about how to be mad at your kids. Please welcome her to the stage. I got it right, right? You did. Okay. So just like we all poop, we all get mad. There is nothing wrong with you if you get mad, although sometimes it can feel like it, especially if you've experienced anger expressed at you in ways that have been abusive or otherwise harmful. It can be a, feel like a load of crap to carry or to impose on other people. And from your personal experience, but also from the ways we're culturally conditioned, if you think about the ways that women's anger, for example, is policed, and the stereotypes like um, the angry black woman or the good girl. These things are um, ways of uh, trying to control anger because it feels threatening. Anger is powerful. Anger is necessary. It can be a source of justice and of holding boundaries. We need anger, and we need to model it for our kids in ways that doesn't, don't harm them, and that give them a sense of how to handle their own anger. Our kids aren't lab rats. They don't need immediate and consistent input. So if you're really heated, one constructive thing you can do is nothing. Contain yourself, hold on to it, wait until you can handle it better. If you do um, have control of your emotions, you know, you're angry, but you can be a little creative. You can be playful, you can be, um, you can bring in humor, then you have the opportunity to change the situation, either in the moment or because you've planned ahead. You know, if you think about the things that you've told your kids a thousand times, if you think about what always pisses you off, if you can predict it, you can plan for it. And one thing that you want to do to change the situation essentially is just get out of it. Not necessarily leave the space you're in, but get out of the conflict as quickly as you can by owning your responsibility for it. What can I do to make this better? Not, how can I make you stop pissing me off? 
So if we are looking for um, uh, other constructive ways of handling our anger, we can um, complain about it, not by biting our kids' heads off, but by finding those places that we can vent and we can um, move our bodies through our experiences of anger in the ways that we're already moved to. Maybe we need to scream. Maybe we need to punch a punching bag. We find the ways that we can um, complain or uh, vent anger that are constructive and not hurtful for our kids. One way maybe by finding the people who can hear you, the friends who can hear you say, I hate my kid. And they're not going to judge you. They're not going to um, try to fix you. They're just going to witness you. Now, they'll have compassion for you, but they're not going to collude with you. They're not going to agree, yeah, you're right, your kid is an asshole. <laughs> when you find those people, when you find the people who can hold those emotions with you, who can help you find your softer uh, emotions, those, are, those people are gifts in your life. Those are the people who can help you reach that uh, ultimate uh, constructive expression of anger, which is moving through it into sadness. That sadness, when we can cry about what disappoints us, when we can uh, feel the ways that our expectations haven't been met, when we look at our own failings or the ways that we wish our kids were different, then we have the possibility of being changed by the things we can't change. And that's the ultimate transformation that moving through anger into sadness allows for us. So if you want to constructively handle anger, you can um, contain yourself, you can change the situation, you can complain about it, or you can cry. So those are all ways that we become the parents who can handle anger in ways that are useful and constructive. So my work is, uh, as a parent coach, I rely on the, the work of Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who is focused on helping parents understand their kids. My work is helping parents understand ourselves so we can better serve our kids. If you want the notes from this talk um, and other resources about handling anger, especially for parents, you can text MAD to 444-999. My name is Jenna Pertuset. It looks like Jenny. It sounds like Jenna. <laughs> And um, I'm also a mom. <laughs> uh, and I came to this work because I needed to help my daughter handle her anger. And to do that, I had to handle my own. Thank you. Is your daughter here? Can I make her stand up and get a round of applause? Yeah. Okay. What, what's her name? Meg. Meg. I believe that her daughter's actually here. Meg, where are you? Meg, can you stand up? Round of applause for Meg and her mom here. By the way, they're flashing the heart sign at each other. Just cool. We need like an ignite sign. I don't know what to be like a fire. I don't know what to be. Some of you creative people, you work on that. Tell me after the show. Next up, we have assumptions about how the world works. One thing happens after another. Is that about our perception, our cognition, or is that truly a factor, a fact about how the universe works? Our next talk is going to answer or at least explore some of these questions. Andre Bourdain is going to talk about obsession with causality. Please welcome him to the stage.
Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me here. Tonight, I want to talk about obsession with causality and how it affects our perception of the world can lead us to false conclusions and correct actions. Because you see, learning starts from observations. You make observations, you create cause and effect chains. So for example, if you see lightning, you hear thunder, cause and effect. And these are correlations. Now these observations, they condition us. So if you imagine a Pavlov's dog, it was conditioned to expect food every single time it would hear the bell ring. But that conditioning is absolutely useless. It doesn't help it get food when it hears the bell ring. So here's the interesting thing. The conditioning was instinctual. But there's another form of condition we humans have called superstition. Superstition is a conditioning that we can get without observation. Someone can give it to us. I'm not immune, neither are some of the greats. For example, Michael Jordan would always wear his North, uh, North Carolina shorts and uh, his normal shorts for playing for the Bulls. Maybe explains why his greatness didn't go to baseball. He didn't wear the shorts, you know? <laughs> or greatest man of science, Albert Einstein, would have a horseshoe up on the wall, and he obviously didn't believe in it, but he was very well of the f uh, aware of the fact that you don't have to believe in it for it to bring you luck. So I implied that superstition is limited to reasoning. But is that really so? Or is it something deeper, our deep instinct of cause and effect? So, or is, and is it limited to humans? Or do animals experience that as well? Well, interestingly enough, B.F. Skinner has discovered that if you feed uh, pigeons at intervals, they develop their own unique rituals, how to conjure food. Some would spin in their cage twice, others would knock on the door. Now, these superstitious pigeons obviously have a false link, and we turn to research to look for the true links. But sometimes we get bizarre results. I mean, like, what's up with the eggs? <laughs> but what I'm suggesting, though, is that some research, research is governed by big data. We process a massive amount of big data to find patterns, to use those patterns for correlations, and come up with cause and, a, cause and effect chains. For example, in the state of Maine, the divorce rate is correlated with the consumption of margarine. <laughs> if you're happily married, perhaps don't eat margarine. If you like mozzarella cheese, you're a good candidate to be a civil engineer doctor. <laughs> but let's be serious, because this next one is a bit concerning. There seems to be a relationship between U.S. oil imports and chicken consumption. What oil does the secret recipe of KFC use? <laughs> but, all right, so obviously these correlations are clearly fault, no causality link. But sometimes we uh, attribute causality to less obvious chance events, like Bill Miller's personal success. He was once named the greatest money manager of our time for having beat the market for 15 years. But if we think about it, we should have, it's almost inevitable that a fund manager would have beat the market for 15 years in the past 40 years out of all of them. So is his success really attributed to his personal strength or is it just luck? Especially considering that the following years have been went so great. Or if we turn to sports, many athletes uh, have suffered poor performance seasons after going on the Sports Illustrated cover. Now, the Sports Illustrated is not over 15 years. The choice is much uh, narrower. It's higher influence by luck. But what about negative luck? 
Leonardo DiCaprio is one of the most consistent performers. He has been nominated for Oscars and expected to win numerous times, but Lady Luck wouldn't have it so. Now also consider this, his loss was a couple Oscars. Bill Miller's loss was his finances. So this is a black swan event. Because if you bet all your fortune on the white swans, and you're, then you leave yourself completely uh, exposed to the unexpected black swan event. Because the point is not to be risk averse, but to limit your exposure to the unpredictable events, the black swan event, that can have irreversible impact. See, life is not necessarily predictable. You won't find a causality chain to predict it. So let chance and randomness in, put all your effort in, limit your exposure, and if you want to achieve success, just double your failure rate. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. So next up, Stephanie Carrillo is going to talk about why it takes a village. Please welcome Stephanie to the stage. We got some friends in the audience. Um, my village over here, yes. So I am a community manager, a landlord, if you will. And I must say, it is a crime to get paid for what I do. My company pays me to build relationships with people. However, my boss is here, and if she wants to give me a raise, I'm totally open for negotiation later. <laughs> um, there's this joke that I have with my friends that I act like I'm the mayor of the communities that I manage. I'm out there each day shaking hands and kissing babies. I may take what I do a little too seriously. I meet people every day that are moving to Seattle from out of state, and it pains me to think that one day they may experience that dreaded Seattle freeze. <laughs> Many of you know what I'm referring to, but for those of you who don't, let me enlighten you. The gist of it is, have a nice day somewhere else. <laughs> don't get me wrong, everyone here is very kind, but at the same time, everyone here is also very busy. Luxury apartment isn't gonna pay for itself, you know. So I did a little research, and I found that only 20% of Americans can say they know their neighbors by name, and far fewer interact with them on a daily basis. Remember growing up when your best friend lived down the street? So as we're preparing for this talk, I was talking with one of my residents, and he gave me this amazing metaphor that I will now reference. Thank you, Aaron. I know you'll be watching this later. Um, he compared people to books, and usually we only see what's on the cover. If we're lucky, we'll get to read what's inside. He asked me, why does building community matter? Why would it matter to other people? Most people have that what's in it for me attitude. And he's right, most people do have that attitude, what's in it for me. I've come to realize not everyone else is like me. They may just need a little help getting there. So why is it important? Because social, like strong social interactions, they make people happier. It's science. We can't and shouldn't argue with science. We're not talking alternative facts here. This is real shit. So. You know, it takes a, they say it takes a village to raise a child. How about it takes a village just to get through life? There's no reason that we should go at this alone. You need to find a strong support group around you to help you get through it. So, I met one of my best friends at a community barbecue that my daughter and I crashed. Had we not gone to that barbecue that day and just started talking to that lady sitting there by herself, I would have missed out on this. My daughter, who was all of nine years old, built community that day. Now don't get me wrong, I don't want you to think it's all rainbows and unicorns for me every day. 
it's not. There are days where I build community so hard that all I want to do is just crawl into bed and not look anyone in the eye on the way home. That is where this guy comes in. My superhero fiance, we kind of inspire each other when it comes to this subject. When the day kicks my ass and I don't want to look any in the eye, he will grab the reins. When we moved into our apartment building, he decided to join the basketball league. They asked and he said yes. He has made such a strong foundation of friendships with the other people in this league. He didn't start it, but he said yes when he was invited. I would like to introduce you to Mr. Brown. This is our puppy. You can follow him on Instagram later. Yes. So we know so many people in our neighborhood because of our dog. You know, he helps us build community. I mean, he does it for cookies, but that doesn't make it any less important. So I've recently discovered what book club is. Apparently, you don't even have to read a book to do book club. It's really just a covert way to drink wine together. I am so down for that. So whenever I get people together, I try to think of like creative and like engaging ways to make people happy. Um, I, tr I do my best to link people up with someone that I think that they might get along with. And I kind of think of myself as like the millionaire matchmaker, except for they're not millionaires. And I'm not trying to create a love connection. So maybe I'm just trying to connect people so that they can just do life together. Whenever I see a bromance blossom, it just warms my heart and brings me so much joy that like I was a part of that. I helped make that happen. I love creating a platform for something like that to happen. So you're asking yourself, what can I do so that I can leave behind the shadows of an isolated life? Well, you can start by Asking yourself, if you can't name at least one or two of your neighbors, I think it's time that you say hi. Um, a simple smile. If you're invited to go somewhere, just say yes. I think it's more about being intentional to put ourselves in situations where we can do life together. So that's how you can connect with me and do community with me. Thank you. I don't want to fall. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> There are lots of different ways to think about world, communities and to think about worlds, and we're gonna hear a talk that's gonna challenge us to think about the worlds that we create for our children. John Krieski is gonna talk about a world for every classroom. Please give him a round of applause. Coming up. So who here has played this game? This is the Oregon Trail, and this game is brutal. The first, game, th first thing you do in this game is you put in the names of your family members, your friends, and it spends the rest of the time killing them off with horrible diseases and accidents. And this is a game for kids. Like, why would you do this, right? And the creators knew that there's something really powerful about that, putting people in that experience, giving them that gift of being in this world. Because education hasn't changed a whole lot since its original conception in its current form in the Industrial Revolution. We're still dividing up subjects. We're still doing a lot of rote learning and memorization. And it's great if you're training factory workers, but if you're training students who need to face the challenges that we haven't even discovered yet, it's, it's totally insufficient. And what I wonder is if we can bring technology into this equation, if we can somehow you know, bridge that gap 
So my background is I worked in the commercial games industry on games like Batman and Lord of the Rings. These, uh, these big budget titles that, you know, there's something magical about games. They're, you don't have to make somebody play a game. It's not like homework, right? Like, they're just drawn to it naturally. And is there something about that? Like, if education could be like that, that it's just a self-driven thing, you know, could we bring that power of education to, of games into education? So uh, I'm currently working on a project called Eco. Uh, so we founded a new studio, and Eco is a game that simulates uh, an ecosystem of thousands of plants and animals for a single classroom. And this world is set in a, a scientific simulation of an ecosystem where players have to build a civilization. And all their resources are coming from the environment, so they can affect the, the environment that they're playing in. And the teacher is part of this world, so they understand what's going on and like, what students are doing, and they can use this in their classroom. And this is uh, highly focused on collaboration and leadership and connection. You can create governments in the game. You can propose laws, and then players vote on it. They're forming these, these groups in order to make decisions about what should be allowed in this world. Because the problems that we're facing today are not just scientific. They're not just knowledge problems. They're social problems. They're things that we need to connect to each other, we need to understand. These are the skills that we need to, to give other people. And this just puts everything that they're learning in such a context. Because it's a fragile world. This, the world of eco can die. It can be polluted, you can chop down all the trees, your species can go extinct, you can kill off your food supply. So it really lives or dies based on the student's decisions. There's these stakes. What they're learning in class is immediately applicable in this social context. You know, they're playing with their friends, this world's important to them, and that just gives so much more value to what you're learning in school. It gives you the why that education so often struggles to provide. Because there's no bad guys in this game. The only enemies are other players and trying to decide the right way forward. And even though you have the same shared goal, there's people have different biases, different ways of approaching it. And the weapon you wield in this game is data. So you're able to look at the simulation. You're able to see what's happening in this world, what's happening to the population rates, what's, what are players doing, what's pol what pollution rates are happening, and use that to argue your point. So you're basing it in this, these facts of this world, and that is how you, you succeed in the game. So we tried this out in some classrooms, and one classroom we had, uh, first period comes in. First thing they do, chop down pretty much every tree, and uh, they build these awesome houses out of them. And then second period comes into the same world, they're sharing it, no trees anywhere. So they chop down the houses of first period, build their own houses. And just that conflict that you have the same goal in this game, but your individual like, needs and biases, it's tragedy of the commons. You know, giving players that experience and trying to navigate that is the, the future of what we need. So we're rethinking, like, how can technology fit in the classroom? You know, traditionally it's kind of, you have computer lab and you sit down and you have this individual experience, right? which is not really making use of the classroom space. I'm interested in something that you're playing the game at home, and the classroom is the council meeting time. It's where you're discussing what's going on in the shared world, where you're applying everything you're learning in the class. You're connecting to each other and, and using that, using your skills immediately. And I think uh, there's, there's a huge potential for games to really address some of the, the huge challenges that we face. And things like climate change and sustainability. These are massive problems that happen over you know, huge amounts of time. And with a game, you can compress that into a tiny space and a tiny period of time that you can see the impact, you can see the effect you're having, and actually understand what your role is in this thing, and then work it out with your peers. And maybe it's not that games need to look more like education, but that education needs to look more like games. Thanks a lot.
job. Excellent. So coming up next, we love to have a diverse group of people, diverse ideas come up on stage. Coming up next is our youngest speaker tonight. So I want you to give an especially enthusiastic welcome. River O'Connor is going to talk about simulating the international community. Please welcome him to the stage. When I was in middle school, I got in trouble for writing out the Nazi hierarchy on a whiteboard. I, I was explaining the plot of the man in the high castle to a friend. Right? I love history and politics, and through those passions, I found the model United Nations organization. This is a lot. MUN focuses on the General Assembly, the Security Council, the Secretariat, the Economic and Social Council, and the International Court of Justice to simulate. MUN takes a week at the United Nations and compresses it into a weekend for an MUN conference. These conferences, which are annual and are held locally, will have you write a paper on a position you are given. You will then submit the paper before attending the conference's set location with the rest of your school team. The expected attire is Western business formal. MUN started in 1945, coming from the Model League of Nations. Originally only for college and university, MUN is now for middle and high school, with conferences being held around the world. But this won't help. This will help. This shows all those hundreds of conferences being held for hundreds and occasionally thousands of attendees. MUN is truly a global event that brings students from around the world together to discuss serious issues, and I find that really inspiring about MUN. Now, conference debate varies, but it will usually consist of opening, caucuses, a discussion among the whole group to debate details and write resolutions, attempting to vote on those resolutions, and then closing debate. A crisis committee is in a war or humanitarian emergency that will operate after opening in continuous caucus where delegates can write directives, which are little actions which they and any conspirator can submit to navigate debate. More on crisis committees later. <laughs> I'm going to try and explain more about how MUN is significant to me and this world through some of my own experiences. I applied my last year of middle school. I got into my high school's MUN program in 2015. I was passionate about politics and history, and I joined my classmates twice a week to prep for conference. We practiced writing resolutions and position papers. We practiced debate procedure. But most importantly, we kept up with the world around us that we lived in through the news. Representing in Seattle, Vietnam on the Human Rights Council at my first conference was great. I worked with people I'd never met before to pass resolutions on cultural appropriation, and the rights of indigenous people. It was powerful to do that and know that some real diplomats couldn't achieve that. Flying to Washington, D.C. for Venezuela on an ad hoc security council was also great. Ad hocs deal with all conference topics. It's one of the most advanced committees a delegate can do. In addition, the Deputy Prime Minister of Malaysia spoke there, showing me that these leaders know MUN is important. Representing Iran on Bashar al-Assad's side during the Syrian civil war on a joint crisis committee was different. I was on a joint crisis committee for the pro-Assad bloc. Russia's interventions were very recent at the time. It was very new to me and very controversial. But part of MUN is representing positions that you may not personally agree with, but in doing so you can find yourself more empathetic to people on the other side of your personal opinion and deal with more controversial issues like Syria civil war from a more open-minded perspective. No technology while delegates are debating. So that's why, as a page at my high school's hosted Skyman conference, I relayed messages. 
Doing this gave me respect for the other students that put in the hard work volunteering to put on these conferences for other delegates to attend to. My first MUN year ended. I had grown in my debate and my diplomacy skills. I re-entered the interview application process. I was with a different team, but I was an MUNer ready for the next cycle of conferences. Representing China, pro-Russia on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and the war in the Central African Republic with more impassioned, more tough debate uh, delegates to debate with and against was a great opening to a new year. My second crisis committee was representing Spanish Republicans in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, <laughs> historical crisis committee operates on a specific historical event. We came up with a different outcome than what really happened. We won. Awards are given at the end of the conference, and they're split into three categories. A delegate award for delegates that best uh, represented debate, cooperation, and conduct. A literary award for position papers. And team awards for best small and large delegation teams coming to the conference. You think this is too much for a teenager. This is dark. This is serious. There are laughs. There's camaraderie. There's a social. It's not all dark, gritty politics. We know it's a simulation. Some of these positions aren't our own, but it's a simulation. MUN has allowed me to connect with people with my passion to grow and learn. And I think that's what MUN is most importantly about, connecting people and educating them about the international community we live in. Thank you. Great job, my friend. How old are you? 16. 16. So if you're feeling depressed about the state of things and the future of things, uh, that young gentleman is 16 years old. I just did that. So. Next up is one of my favorite talk titles of all time, perhaps. <laughs> Ferris Holiday, title of his talk is No, I Don't Know Where to Buy Weed. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage. Hey, yo, Dreadlock! Where the weed at? I swear to God, you guys, if I had a nickel for every time some stranger on the street yelled at me, Yo, Dreddy, where the weed? I'd have enough money to go to the weed store and buy up enough for all of y'all. <laughs> swear to God, this is part of my life. I used to work with Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Right, so most of the time I would spend, right, come on, you can give it up for those folks. So most of the time was spent running around through the community with interns, either that I was speaking life into, just trying to spend time with them, right? And I see this dude on the street who I know, sorry mom if y'all are watching this, but he goes, yo, Ferris! And I'm like, shit. Where the weed at? So one, he knows I smoke weed, one, he knows I smoke weed, he knows I know where to find it. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, damn it. And what do I do, right? Any uncomfortable moment in y'all's life, I lied. I was like, man, I don't smoke weed. Come on, Tim, you know that. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> right? And I catch one of my boys over there giving me side I like, lie. <laughs> so part of my job is I traveled around the country and I would go speak at conferences, right? Five, 10,000 people get to hang out with them. We're talking like Britney Spears microphones, jumbotrons, because if I ain't big enough, put my ass on a 30-foot screen. 
One time I was out in Richmond, Virginia, and I was hanging out at a conference there, met a bunch of folks, and they come up to me, and we're, we're talking about the work that our communities are doing inside of the gospel community, outside of the gospel community with our houseless and our homeless friends, working with our, uh, our friends who are women transitioned away from sex trafficking, like the shit people should talk about, am I right? So we get to the end of the conversation. I look at homie, and I'm like, yo, dude, this is great. Let's go get a drink. And he goes, we Christian. We don't drink. And I was like, this guy's going to lose his goddamn mind when I go smoke a cigarette in a second. <laughs> so here I am, right, 3,000 miles from home, talking about the gospel community, talking about the gospel movement, and I unfortunately invited somebody into my life to look at me and say, you don't look like a Christian. You look like you know where to get weed. I was like, hell yeah, I do. I got the app on my phone. <laughs> so two things, right? Two points. I'm going to go ahead and steal home here real quick. We have an Ignite Seattle superstar in the house. His name's Brian Zug right over here. He gave a talk, literally, this man had to give a talk titled, How to Be a Christian Without Being a Dick, because somebody had to do it. Right now, we're in a time where ain't nobody got time for that inside the gospel community, outside the gospel community. Nobody got time to be a dick. Also, fuck, because I want to. I'm not one of those Christians that's going to sit up here and talk about hellfire, brimstone. The political community is doing that and enough. And by the way, from the mouth of a Libyan, ah, that's another talk. Second point I got for you all tonight is I fully believe, I fully believe that the gospel community is part of an inclusive community, not an exclusive community. We are a community of people who are not building up walls no matter who the fuck thinks somebody's going to pay for it. We're opening the door and saying, homie, same side, same city, same love. R.I.P. Sonics, right? They were, uh, for most of you guys who aren't from here, which is also not me, they were a baseball team that we lost. Now, there's a story in the gospel narrative of Jesus. We have this man named Jesus, and we have this Samaritan woman that they see on the street, right? At the time, they're totally racially divided. People where Jesus was from don't talk to people like this Samaritan woman. In the gospel narrative, we see Jesus going first and being like, yo, fuck racial division. I don't care where you're from. I care where you're at. Whatever labels of shame, insecurities, disappointments that people feel, we see this gospel narrative character, Jesus, being like, I ain't a dick. <laughs> yo, I actually wait until the day that I get to run into my homie Tim again, right? Hey, hey, yo, dreadlock guy. And be like, yo, homie, hashtag? Right around the corner. They got some good deals right about now. Thank you guys so much. Have a good night. what to say. <laughs> I like that. I'm happy about that. That's good. That's good. So for our last speaker, I got, I got to set you up a little bit here. Uh, we, again, we didn't design this whole night to be biologically centric. There were a lot of talks about bodies and whatnot. But it is interesting about diversity because the word shit has come up many times tonight in all different sorts of meanings and uses and ways. And this last talk will add to that diversity. <laughs> So, our last speaker of the night, Andrew Ho, is going to talk about why we stopped eating the nasty shit. Please welcome him to the stage. So why and when did Americans stop eating the nasty shit? 
And how do certain food items become known by most Americans as nasty? Food that's eaten throughout the world, such as pig uterus, and pig ears, and chicken feet, and ram testicles. <laughs> Food that Americans once ate. I'm gonna tell you a story about American cuisine and how it's been shaped by political intrigue, economic brinksmanship, and our social anxieties. And I hope this story will inspire you to try more of the nasty shit. <laughs> Let's start with the colonial period. So white people moved to the new world, and at first they're starving. They're so fucking hungry, they're willing to eat anything, including each other. 18th century, traders are established within the British Empire, so now people have options. And Americans, especially in the North, are favoring British old world cuisine over indigenous ingredients. So they're importing like rum from the British Caribbean, or tea from Britain. Well, the Brits started taxing the rum and the tea, and they soon learned that when you fuck with people's alcohol and caffeine supply, there's going to be a revolution. <laughs> Revolutionaries, of course, um, you know, they boycotted British goods, and instead of rum, they started drinking whiskey, and instead of tea, they started drinking coffee, which is why you drink coffee. Independence achieved, so now the US can trade outside of the British Empire, so American cooks have a wider access have a greater access to wider range of ingredients. The US is also expanding westward, so they need more white people, I mean white people, to populate newly conquered lands. And there's so much land that they're bringing in white people they don't really like, like Irish Catholics and Italians and Slavs and Eastern European Jews, and they're bringing with them all sorts of culinary traditions and ingredients from the New World. So by the 1924, Americans are eating all sorts of nasty shit, weird shit, redneck food, peasant, European peasant food, and soul food. It's all there, that's what Americans are eating. And the American diet reflects the diverse population and its vast lands. 1924 also marks in an effort to whiten or to assimilate the undesirable whites, um, the end of liberal immigration policies, and the beginning of the modern kitchen. So refrigeration considerably reduces uh, prestige items such as beef, so that Americans are trading horse meat, liver, and gizzards for hamburgers and steak. It's also when the American government start getting involved in telling Americans what to eat, how to cook, and what not to eat. So that by 1980, Americans are eat, trying to eat like the Jetsons would. They're eating tang and white bread and margarine and made with shit that I cannot pronounce, okay? And, <laughs> and the American palate has been narrowed so much so that they can't enjoy anything much more than hamburgers and pizza and hot dogs. American cuisine had become a disaster. The Japanese, not Julia Child, saved American cuisine. In the 1980s, the Japanese are on a roll, right? So they come to America to do business, and they bring their chefs with them. And the Americans eating with them are trying food they never had before, like chicken gizzards and beef tongue and, oh my God, raw fish, which is a big fucking deal back then, right? <laughs> Nobody ate raw fish. You were told to never eat raw fish, and then they were doing it. And for some, that was an exhilarating experience. <laughs> Emboldened by trying nasty shit, a new type of foodie emerged, and trying nasty shit became a legitimate hobby that was now fueled by the Food Network, okay? 
where chefs were introducing Americans to all sorts of weird, uh, you know, new ingredients from across the nation, around the world, and, and from the past. And now Americans are, have developed a new palate and they're eating new foods like never before. And the new American chef is, wants to show that the world that there's more to American food than just McDonald's and KFC. You know, the point is, eating well has less to do with what we eat and more to do with how we explore what's possible to eat. And perhaps the best way to build a vibrant and spirited cuisine is to expand and challenge rather than accept and limit our palates and imagination. Thank you very much. And if you want to know more about us, go to foodyapp.com, foodyapp.com. There's the original article. Thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Ignite Seattle 32 took place on February 23rd at Town Hall Seattle. The MC was Scott Birkin. Ignite Seattle 33 is coming up on May 18th again at Town Hall Seattle. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>